If you have been keeping up closely with the presidential election, then you may have heard about a month ago that former governor of South Carolina, former Sec- ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, uh, well, she did what politicians are really, really good at. She opened her mouth and stuck her foot in it. When somebody asked her, what was the cause of the United States Civil War? And instead of giving the easy answer and the expected answer and just saying slavery, Nikki Haley said something to the effect of the Civil War was about people's freedoms to do what they wanted. And of course, she, she backed it up and reframed it and got through the PR disaster. Not that it'll make much difference, but... Um, it is a good question. What was the Civil War about? I've told you before that I'm a Civil War geek, and so what was the Civil War about? Well, it was very much about slavery. But the slavery question was tied to a lot of political issues, a lot of legal theory, and all sorts of laws and statutes really going all the way back to the ratification of the Constitution. And one of those important legal decisions was the infamous, and this will probably ring a bell from eighth grade history class, the infamous 1857 Supreme Court decision, the Dred Scott case. And Dred Scott was a slave who had been moved to Missouri, and the laws in Missouri at that time were ambiguous about slavery and freedom for African Americans, and so he sued for his freedom. And his legal case went all the way to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, guided by Chief Justice at the time, Robert Taney, ruled against Dred Scott 7-2, to saying that he had no right to sue for his freedom. And in that decision, Robert Taney was, in a bumbling way, trying to satisfy everybody, because that always works. You can always make everybody happy, right? But Robert Taney was trying to do that. And Robert Taney was trying to satisfy slave states and free states and trying to keep the United States from fracturing apart in the Civil War. But his decision was not just something that he invented out of thin air. His decision was actually based upon legal precedent that came before, based on a number of things. And what he did was he took the laws pertaining to the case, as he saw it, he read them, he interpreted them, he handled them, he manhandled them, and he gave a ruling. And the ruling in the Dred Scott case was so controversial and so aggravating to everybody on both sides of the argument that it pushed the country even closer to civil war that began in 1861. And so here's a man and so here's a court who took the law and handled the law poorly and the nation paid the consequences for it. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers killed, millions of dollars worth of damage, a nation fractured brother against brother because the people responsible for handling the law did it poorly. You know that the law matters. And when the law is handled by a court or by a lawyer or by a judge, we expect it to be handled well. Because when it's not handled well, the consequences can be grave. But how much more does the law of God matter? And how much more dangerous is it when the law of God is handled poorly? That's what our text is going to be about tonight in 1 Timothy chapter number 1 as we continue studying this great pastoral epistle. And in this text, the Apostle Paul is going to write to Timothy, pastoring a difficult church at Ephesus, that they have to understand how to handle the Old Testament law of God. 
And this subject that the Apostle Paul broaches in this text, this is one of the most important, if not exciting, one of the most important and one of the most relevant issues that is always on the surface in every single Christian church. I wonder if you might look back over your journey as a believer. And maybe you've seen ways, even if you didn't know it at the time, but you've seen ways where the law of God was not handled well in your life. Maybe on the one hand, you've had potentially well-meaning people throw out empty platitudes like, well, we can just ignore the Old Testament law because, after all, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Or on the other hand, some of your Christian experiences have been such that you've been beaten up by the law of God with a nice layer of the laws and rules of man on top of that. And you know, don't you? You know that the law matters. And that when the law of God is handled poorly, the damage can be immeasurable. That's the Apostle Paul's concern as we read our text tonight. As he wants you to learn that for you to live with joy before Jesus, you have to have a clear and proper understanding of the law of God. For us to live before Jesus joyfully, we must handle the law of God carefully. Let me say that again. For us to live before Jesus joyfully, we must handle the law of God carefully. Let's pick up our reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 8. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 8. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever." The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy in this letter, almost like a military superior, writing to a subordinate, issuing him his orders. In fact, he says what those orders are in verse number 3. He says, I urge you to remain. This is the charge that I give you, to remain at Ephesus. Now, the church at Ephesus had a long and storied history already by this point. The church at Ephesus was also a conflicting mess of spiritual confusion, power plays, all the rest. And I'm sure that there was something in Timothy as a frustrated pastor that said, I really want to get out of here. But God says, Timothy, you need to stay. And the reason that Timothy needed to stay, the primary reason that Timothy needed to stay was because Timothy needed, according to Paul, to charge certain persons not to teach false doctrine. He said, Timothy, what you have to do is you have to be clear about the truth and you have to make sure that you give people the true and the pure gospel without any mixture, without any confusion, without any disruption. Now what we don't know about Ephesus here in 1 Timothy, what we don't know about this church is we don't know exactly what the false doctrine that they're imbibing was. We can put some pieces together, but it really doesn't even make sense. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul just refers to it as silly. He said it's just nonsense. We know that there's some kind of Jewish undercurrent. We know that there's probably a, a hyper-feminist movement based upon what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. 
We know that there's some weird stuff with genealogies based upon what he says in 1 Timothy 1. There's some mythological element. There's some mysticism, some proto-gnosticism. It's just a hot mess of false doctrine. Whatever it is, it's bad. But the one thing we do know, based upon verse number 7 and what we read here tonight, we do know that whatever the false teachers were teaching, they were teaching with a strong Jewish accent. Did you see what the Apostle Paul said there in verse number 7? He said, they desire to be teachers of the law. Never mind the fact they don't understand the law or what they teach about the law. They want to have the reputation of being teachers of the law. They want to be known as people who are teaching the Old Testament law and have the respect of being called rabbi. They want to have that exalted title. They want to be thought well of. They want to be somebody that matters in the way that they handle the law of God. Now, why is that? Why is it that this would be so popular in this church? I think there are three reasons. The first is it would have been familiar. The church at Ephesus, like every church the Apostle Paul planted, had at its core group, a group of Jewish believers who embraced Jesus and wanted to follow him. And so Jewish teachings and Jewish traditions would have been familiar to them. Second, and probably more relevant, it would have been comfortable. It would have been comfortable. We know when the Apostle Paul founded the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter number 19, that uh, there was really strong Jewish opposition to the preaching of the gospel. On bordering on persecution. And it would have been easy for these people to slide back into a little bit more Judaism and a little bit less Jesus so that they didn't have to face the slings and arrows of the Jewish people that hated them. And there's always an element of comfort in every false doctrine. There's always something in false teaching that says we want to accommodate ourselves to the culture around us. There's always a desire to appease the world. There's always a desire to satisfy ourselves. There's always a desire to remove something or shave something off of the teachings of the Bible just so we don't cause too much trouble. Well, cause some trouble for the glory of God tonight. Anyway, the third reason that their use of the law would have been natural, and this is the scary one, is because it was biblical. What I mean by that is not that they were being faithful to what the Bible taught, but that they could take Bible verses pulled out of thin air, ripped from their context, and they could wrap their false teaching in all of these disconnected Bible verses like so much paper mache. And so they could attach it to this Bible story, attach it to that Bible command, and people without discernment would hear it and think, they're teaching to us the law of God. But the Apostle Paul is clear in this passage that their teaching does not faithfully preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, if you are manhandling the law, you cannot faithfully preach the gospel. And this passage of Scripture that shows us the law matters shows us how that as believers, if we are going to live joyfully before Jesus, then we must carefully handle the law of God. And so what I want to do this evening is work through this passage of Scripture with you, with as much time as we have, and I want to help you think about the Old Testament law. Now, notice with me first in this passage of Scripture, I think you cannot argue with this, the Apostle Paul defines the law as good. Do you see that in verse number 8? Paul defines the law as good. Now, Brother Jesse, where does that come from? Well, we know that the law is good. That's what he says. And so what Paul does here is make a simple and a direct and a clear statement that the Old Testament law of God is good. I want you to underline that in your Bible, or I want you to make a note of it. I want to make sure that you lock this in your mind. Because it's easy for us as New Testament believers 
who love the grace of God, who love the gospel of God, who love the cross of Jesus Christ, to look back on the Old Covenant and think, well, in the Old Covenant, God was being mean. And in the Old Testament, God was being harsh. And under the law, God was being cruel. And God presents Himself as a judge. And thank God we're out from under all of that. But y'all, I want to tell you this evening that as I read the testimonies of the Old Testament saints, those people delighted in the gift of the law of God to them. Think about Psalm chapter number 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of God. On his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, verse 165 says this, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Paul says, the law is good. But if you've underlined that part of the verse, make sure you circle the next word, because it's the biggest little word in the whole passage. The law is good if, if one uses it lawfully. There's a way to preach and teach and think about it, interpret it, understand the Old Testament law of God that is dangerous, that is damning, that is foolish, that is ignorant, that is reckless, and that destroys people's lives. That's what Paul's worried about in this passage of Scripture. And so how, how does that happen today? We don't know exactly how it was happening here in 1 Timothy 1. How does it happen today? Well, the first and obvious answer, maybe even from this text, is we can deny that the law is good. We can view the law of God as the expression of an outmoded religious way of thinking. We can view the Old Testament law as something primitive, as something beneath us, as something so far before us that we need to get away from it. In the second century, there was a heretic teacher by the name of Marcion who taught that. In fact, he went so far as to teach that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the Jesus of the New Testament, and so the Old Testament was not Scripture. Don't read it. Don't interact with it. It's not for you. Now, we would reject Marcionism, I hope, but... At the same time, practically, we can live in such a way as if we are unhitched from the Old Testament law. In fact, popular Bible teacher Andy Stanley preached recently, maybe a year or two ago, that Christians need to unhitch themselves. That's his words, unhitch themselves from the Old Testament law. Because the Old Testament law, he said, gets in the way of our witness for Jesus. I would warn you about anybody that tells you you need to unhitch yourself from any part of the Word of God. Paul says the law is good. But we can have this attitude inside of us that says, the law is keeping me from the life that I want to live. The law of God is restricted. The law of God is cold. The law of God is callous. The law of God is empty. And the best thing that I can do is to remove myself from it altogether. Properly understood, that is a position. And I want you to get these words. These are big words, I know. But I've got two of them I want to talk about tonight. Uh, This is understood as antinomianism. That can say either the law is bad and we need to get away from it, or perhaps that if Jesus has saved us, then the law has no relevance to our lives at all. And it can go so far as to say, if Jesus has saved me, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I act. It doesn't matter how I treat people because God will forgive me. God has forgiven me. I've prayed the prayer. I've signed the card. I've been baptized, whatever. And so my life now really does not matter because I've got my heavenly fire insurance. That is antinomianism. Paul says here to us clearly that the law is good. Another way that we misuse the law is called legalism. Legalism 
may be what's happening here in 1 Timothy. Because you'll notice in verse number 8 that the Apostle Paul says, the law is not laid down for the just. Now, if he says the law is not laid down for the just or for the righteous, it could be that people were teaching that the law was laid down for the just. Or that they were beating people over the head with the law of God. Presenting the law of God as a means that people could use to save themselves. Presenting the law of God as a ladder that people needed to climb to please God, to go higher, to go further. And using the law of God to put people down. Now, properly defined, legalism is not, and this is how it's often used. And I want to be clear about my terms tonight. Legalism is not preaching and believing and saying that Christians should live holy and separated lives. The Bible calls us to that. The Bible is clear that Jesus makes a difference when He saves us. The Bible is clear that Jesus transforms us. But the Bible is also clear that we can't transform ourselves. The Bible is also clear that we cannot, of our own effort and of our own works, please God. The Bible is also clear that there is no way that I can be righteous enough by keeping the Old Testament law or anybody's rules that I can satisfy God. That is legalism. Believing that through keeping the Old Testament law, I can earn God's favor. Now, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians, he says this in chapter 3, here's what the law is for. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, the King James says schoolmaster, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified, declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. What he's saying there, and we'll talk more about this in just a second, what he's saying there is that the purpose of the law is not given as a ladder that we can climb to make ourselves righteous, but that the law of God teaches us that we are unrighteous. It does not instruct us on how to look within ourselves to save ourselves. The law of God teaches us that we can't help ourselves, and so we look outside of ourselves to Jesus to help us. Now, Here's why this is important. Here's why this is so important. Because if you try for five good minutes to live up to the standard of God's law and His Word, and if you have enough guts to be honest with yourself, what are you going to find out? You'll never do it. You'll find out that the law of God makes you guilty. You'll find out that the law of God condemns you and that the law of God clearly says, as a sinner, you are on the wrong side of the God who made you and the God who has given His law. So what do we do? Listen carefully. Here's what we do. Because we know we can't honestly keep the law of God, we invent rules that we can keep. And we pass off our rules as the Word of God to make ourselves feel better, feel better about ourselves and by putting people underneath us. Jesus taught against this in Matthew chapter 12. Verse 7 through 9, he's quoting the book of Isaiah, but he said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What Jesus is preaching against in that passage is teaching as the word of God, the word of man. Replacing the word and the law of God with the laws of man. Y'all... The law of God commands me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And I have not done that in my life. And if I hold my life alongside that standard, then I am guilty and I am crushed under that burden. But here's what I can do. I can condemn churches that have drum sets. 
I can preach about how it's a sin for women to wear makeup. I can invent standards that are easy for me to keep so that I can make myself feel better than you. And so that I can hold myself up to you and convince myself that I'm righteous when I compare and measure my righteous horizontally against other people. That may be, and likely is, based upon what Paul would write in 1 Timothy 4 about all this stuff about abstaining from meat and marriage, that's probably something like what's happening here in Ephesus. And is it not the case that that's a lot of our backgrounds? That even if we didn't know that it was legalism, it really was. That people who were perhaps very, very well-meaning taught a lot of things that were not in the Word of God as if they were the Word of God. And the way that you can always tell you're in a legalistic church or a legalistic environment is that deep down, all legalism is manipulation. Because deep down, all legalism is an attempt for man to manipulate God. That if I am good enough, then God owes me heaven or blessings or eternal life or whatever. That I can manipulate God. And if deep down I believe that I can manipulate God, then I'm not going to have any problem manipulating you. And legalistic churches manipulate people by laying on them burdens of guilt that are not scriptural. Binding their conscience. Motivating them, not by the grace of God in the gospel, but by crushing them under a burden of expectations. Making them drive harder and go further. The Apostle Paul wants us to see that we have to be careful in the way that we handle the law of God. We have to believe it's good, but we have to handle it in a good way. And so Paul declares that the law of God is good. But as he goes further into verse number 8, we see that not only Paul declares the law of God good, but Paul points us to God who delivers the law to the godless. So here in this text, Paul declares the law is good. We also see that God delivers the law to the godless. See what he says in verse number 8? Verse number 9, rather, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. It is not given as a way for good people to make themselves better. That's the legalistic error. But what is it? It's laid down for the lawless and the disobedient. And then he gets in this whole long list of sins that the law is given to these people. For them. For who? The ungodly, for sinners, unholy, profane. People that hit their moms and dads. Man, if I'd have tried that. I wouldn't be here to preach about it tonight. Murderers, sexual immoral, homosexuals, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else, Paul says. And just in case I missed something, just in case you bunch of creeps have invented some new way to sin that I didn't even think about yet, Paul said whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that's who the law is for. The law is given for sinners, not to good people, so that they can terrorize themselves and try to motivate themselves up to make themselves better. The law is given for sinners. So this is how you need to think about the law of God. I think it'll help clarify some of this, maybe. You should think about the law of God as both a mirror into heaven, or a window into heaven, rather, a window into heaven, and a mirror to your own heart. The law of God is a window into heaven that lets us get a glimpse of the character of God. Now, the Apostle Paul mentions a lot of sin in this passage, all of which is condemned by the Old Testament law of God. But let's pick a sin that's not controversial. I would, God forbid I would ever pick on any sin and, and cause a havoc. So let's just pick one out of the blue that nobody would be offended by. Let's talk about murder. Murder's wrong. Thank you, George. George and I believe that murder is wrong. And I hope that the rest of you come around. Well, we've all thought about it. We've all wondered if we could get away with it. But the law of God says, thou shalt not kill. 
It's wrong to take innocent life. We know that. We believe that. That's a layup. That's the only thing that you can preach, and everybody pretty much anywhere agrees with it. Thou shalt not kill. But why does God say you should not kill? The reason God says you should not kill is because the God who gives that law is the God who created human life. And he created human life with value and with dignity as image bearers of God. And so the commandment that we should not kill is given as a reflection of the character of God who gave the law. And this is how laws always work. Laws are always a reflection of those who write the law. When I moved to Alabama, I was really, really, really surprised about the differences between the gun laws in Alabama and the gun laws in North Carolina. I mean, when we drove the U-Haul over the state line right there at the Welcome Center on Interstate 59, Kay Ivey was standing there, and she was waving in one hand a concealed carry permit and a jug of Milo sweet tea. Welcome to Alabama. Roll Tide, y'all. But the reason Alabama has what would be more lax uh, gun laws is because the people in Alabama take the Second Amendment seriously, and rightfully so. That's a reflection of what the citizenry and what the legislators value. And so, too, the the law of God is a reflection of what God values. Here, the Apostle Paul talks about people who strike their parents. God values family, about sexual immorality. God values our sexual purity. On and on and on, the Apostle Paul goes by saying the law of God reveals that God is against these things that are against Him. So the law of God functions as a window into heaven. But the law of God also functions as a mirror to ourselves. Because when we honestly lay our lives down alongside the Word of God, the law reveals who we really are. Y'all, I'm going to tell you, there are some gnarly sins that the Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Timothy. I am not guilty of all of them, but I am guilty of some of them. And anybody who would read this text sincerely would say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And that's what the law does. The law reveals to us that we are guilty before God so that we would look outside of ourselves for salvation, so that we would despair of ever doing anything to make ourselves right with God, and so that we would come to Christ humbly and receive salvation as a gift that God has given us and not the product of our own works. The Apostle Paul says you should see the law as a mirror. In fact, here's an amazing way the law works as a mirror to our own hearts. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. And he talks about his own experience. It's maybe small print, but it says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the law bad? No, Paul says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Did you get that? If it had not have been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. The Tenth Commandment, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But here's what happens. When I hear this commandment that I should not covet, when you see the wet paint sign, don't step on the grass. What happens inside of your heart? You never met a rule you didn't really want to break, did you, right? So Paul says... But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, 
and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. The law is good, but you're not. That's Paul's point in this passage of Scripture. That the law is not a mountain that we can climb to ascend our way up to God. But the law is a burden that we cannot carry. The law is a sentence that condemns. The law places all of us as guilty. And so Paul says that this law was given by God to these kind of sinners so they could see their sin and see a glimpse of God's character that they do not measure up to. God delivered the law to the godless. But Paul finishes up by telling us that we must differentiate between the law and the gospel. We must differentiate between the law and the gospel. Evidently, whatever the content of the false teaching in the Ephesian church was, there were people that were confusing the law and the gospel and preaching the law as if it was gospel and maybe preaching the gospel like it was law. But more often than not, when the law... When the Old Testament law and human tradition on top of it is preached as the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is totally eclipsed and nowhere to be found. And Paul is recovering the gospel in 1 Timothy. That's what this book is about. It's about a recovery of the gospel. And that's what my heart is for you tonight. That's what my heart is for your life and for our church, that we would recover and uncover and rediscover the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would never lose the gospel either in legalism or antinomianism or in anything in between but that we would see that God saves in Christ. So notice what Paul says in verse number 10. He gives this list, right? Immorals, homosexuality, slavers, perverts of all kinds of descriptions, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Follow his language so you can understand his logic. God gave the law to all of these sinners so that the law would condemn them in their sin, and they would see their sin. And then after giving this long list of sins in these verses, Paul says these kind of sins are contrary to sound or healthy doctrine. If you're living this kind of life, Paul says, you're outside of healthy teaching. And the healthy teaching is what? The healthy teaching is the gospel of the blessed God that the Apostle Paul had been entrusted with. What he's saying in these verses of Scripture, I think, is that a life that the law condemns is the life that the gospel rescues. The life that is judged by the law is saved by Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, I think, is saying to us in this passage of Scripture that we have to know that the content and the form of the gospel and the law are radically different. They differ from each other in their content and in their form. In, in Pilgrim's Progress, that great allegory by John Bunyan about the Christian life, when his main character, the Pilgrim, named Christian, Bunyan wasn't good at names, but the main character, Christian, he flees the city of destruction. And he has this burden on his back that's supposed to be representative of the burden of his sin. And he's told to go to a specific home, the interpreter's house, and the interpreter will tell him how to remove his burden, how to find his way to the everlasting city, how he can find salvation and go to heaven. But early in his journey, he takes some bad advice. And I believe at this point, the person who gives him the advice is a guy by the name of Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Told you he's not good with names. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells Christian that you need to go to, if you want to get this burden off of your back, the person you need to talk to is a man by the name of Mr. Legality. That's his name. Mr. Legality. He tells him he is an expert 
at removing the burden of sin, an expert at removing the burden of guilt, the burden of condemnation that you're carrying. I can tell you're under burden. Go to Mr. Law's house. He can help you. And so Christian believes this. And Christian goes to Mr. Legality's home. But as he approaches Mr. Legality's home, he looks up and realizes that Mr. Legality lives at the top of a mountain. And as he stands at the foot of that mountain looking up towards its summit, Bunyan writes that he sees this mountain as so steep and so threatening and so elevated that he feels as if the mountain is about to fall back in on him and crush him. And he feels that the earth is shaking underneath him and there's lightning at the top of the mountain and he senses that he is helpless before the mountain of the law. And that's what Paul would want you to know tonight, that all of us are helpless before the mountain of the law. This represents a mountain that we are not able to climb. And some of us, if we tried to climb it, might get a little bit further than other people. But somewhere along the way, we would lose our grip and the mountain would claim us. But this is why the gospel is so radically different. Because it said Jesus climbed the mountain. That he's the one who made his way up Calvary's mountain. To take the law into himself. To take our sin into himself. To satisfy the righteous demands of the law that crushed us. He was crushed by that very law. To take the burden from us and to save us. And so Paul wants us to be clear. He wants us to be clear that the gospel is not law. The law comes to us as advice. The gospel comes to us as an announcement. The law comes to us and says, Thou shalt not. The gospel comes to us and says, Jesus has. The gospel comes to us as an invitation, not instruction. It does not say you have to do this, but it says Jesus paid it all, and all to Him we owe. And so Paul wants us to make sure we are clear as we differentiate that, and clear that if we believe this gospel, the gospel will transform us. Because if we believe this gospel, if we embrace the sound doctrine and the sound teaching of the Christian message, then we're not going to live the kind of life that Paul lays out here in these verses. If I'm holding on to Jesus, or rather if Jesus is holding on to me, I'm not going to live in the sin that Jesus died for. I'm not saying we're perfect. I know that we're not perfect. I know we slip and I know we fall. But following Him means we are not going to follow Him into sin. The grace of God transforms us, not in a legalistic way, by merely pressing us into a mold of behavioral modification. But the gospel changes us from the inside out. Our hearts are renewed. We've been given the gift of the Spirit of God so that we are different. So that we are different. And so I would say to you tonight, as clearly as I can, the gospel is not legalism or antinomianism. The gospel is not keep all the rules and God will be pleased. And the gospel is not break the rules, none of it matters. It's neither one of those things. It is not rule breaking or rule keeping. The gospel is Jesus in your place. The gospel is that Christ became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in Him. The gospel is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel message that we proclaim. And folks, that is good news. And there's a glimmer of this good news even here in the way Paul thinks of the law. Think about it. Paul says the law was given to sinners. God loved those perjurers. And He loved those homosexuals. And He loved those liars. And He loved those enslavers. And God said, I'm going to give them a glimpse of their sin so that I can bring them fully to my Son. It's the grace of God on display in the law and in fully in the gospel of God.
But it's not just the gospel of God in verse 11, is it? It's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. See those two words, glory and blessed. I told you last week about these false teachers in Ephesus, and Paul puts his finger on them on the pulse in verse 7. He says, you know, they, they just want to be known as teachers of the law. False teaching can never transform anybody's life. It can only platform the false teacher. That's all it's good for, is to make a false teacher have a better living. That's all I can do. Give them a bigger audience, give them a wider platform, a better stage, put them under brighter lights, have people clamoring at their feet because they claim to have all the secrets and all the insights or whatever the case might be. But if I am a helpless sinner, not only sick in my sin, but condemned by the law of God, dead in trespasses and sins, and if I could not climb the mountain, but Jesus climbed it for me, and if at the top of that mountain on Good Friday, the Lord Jesus took the full weight of the law of God against me, and if because He satisfied the law of God on top of that mountain, He resurrected from the dead three days later because there were no charges over Him, and if the Spirit of God brought me to faith in Jesus so that now there are no charges over me, and if Jesus is transforming me to produce His character in me, then who gets the glory for that? It sure ain't me. It's Jesus from start to finish, from top to bottom, inside and out. He gets all of the glory. Paul always talks about the gospel this way. If I'm saved by my legalism, if I'm saved because I don't wear makeup and I don't, and if I'm saved because I don't have drums in my church, and if I'm saved because I have the right kind of Bible, and if I'm saved because I don't smoke, chew, and date girls who do, if I'm saved by that, then I can walk into heaven one day and say, look how, look how I made it. I did it all. But if I can't climb the mountain, but Jesus climbed it for me, then when I get to heaven, I'm going to bow at His feet. And I'm going to say, He's worthy. Because He did it all. But it's not just the gospel of the glory of God, is it? One of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Or, you might say, of the happy God. That's what the word means. The gospel of the glory of the happy God. Legalism says, keep the rules and you can earn God's favor. Antinomianism says, ignore the rules altogether. They're irrelevant or they're harsh or they're cruel. But deep down, hear me tonight. They're the exact same thing. Because both legalism and antinomianism teach that God is not good. That God is not happy. That God is cruel, cold, indifferent. And therefore you need to either appease Him by making yourself cold and cruel or you need to escape Him. But what Paul says in this passage of Scripture, it is the, the death blow to both legalism and antinomianism. He says, no, you don't understand. Our God is not cold. Our God is not distant. Our God certainly is not cruel. Our God is good. Our God is kind. Our God is full of compassion. Our God is faithful in His steadfast love. Our God is slow to anger. Our God has a heart to save sinners. 
Our God is happy. He does not begrudgingly... Hear me tonight, please. Our God does not begrudgingly save us when we do enough. But our God joyfully and extravagantly offers His Son in our place at the cross. So that the Wednesday night that I came to faith in Jesus, there was singing and shouting in glory over a sinner that repents. Y'all, heaven is happy to have us. What Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture is that God is happy and we have no merit to believe in a God who is cold and cruel and who really resents that we're here. But our God wants us. Our God loves us. Our God cares for us. Our God is loyal to us. Our God is committed to us. The prophet Zephaniah, he got a glimpse of this better than I can preach it. He said in Zephaniah chapter number 3, he said, The Lord your God is in your midst, one who is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you. With all of your, you just pick your sins out of these verses. All of your ungodliness, all of your lawlessness, all of your disobedience, all of your murders. I mean, I hope not, but all of your sexual immorality. All of that. God rejoices over you with gladness. What does he say? He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt exalt over you by loud singing. If we had the ears of faith to hear it tonight, Our God is so happy to have saved us that He is singing about it. You ever been so happy you just can't help sing? In the shower, you're walking through the kitchen or living, and all of a sudden you catch yourself singing to yourself? That's our God. He's so joyfully happy that there's a melody in His heart over us as sinful as we are. Our God is happy to save He's happy to give His Son. Isaiah preached in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Why? Because it delighted God to save you. And when we see that, we're not going to fall into antinomianism and try and get away from God. No, we're going to walk in obedience. But we're not going to walk in obedience in such a way that we're going to descend into legalism. As if God has all these whole cold, hard rules to for us to keep so that He can really care about us. No, we're going to walk in joy. And the song in His heart becomes the song in our heart and the obedience of our lives. Let's pray. Father, Lord, these truths can be deep. And Lord, these truths can be big. But God, they're big for a reason. Lord, I pray that we would hear them and believe them and be changed by them. And that we would know You're happy. We would see Your glory. We would believe, believe the gospel and preach the gospel in a way that does not give people permission to sin and abuse grace, but also in a way that doesn't abuse the law and expect people to conform. I pray we'd preach the gospel that transforms, declares guilty sinners righteous, and then makes them righteous. Help me in my preaching to do that. Help my preaching to reflect your grace and your happiness. God, I pray you would go with us as we leave tonight. Keep us safe, Lord, until we meet again. And we pray for a special blessing on those that can't be with us because of sickness and surgery and hospital stays, all of those things. Some we may not even know about. God, bless your people. And be with us again on the Lord's day as we meet together to worship Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.